So today is Father's Day. And according to the handbook of utterly predictable and boring church life, I am supposed to preach about the fatherhood of God, use a lot of sports metaphors in my sermon, supposed to give out keychains or tire gauges as a gift, and then make some kind of joke when we dismiss about the moms taking the dads out for ribs or something like that. But I'm a bit of a rebel. I don't know if you know that about me. I'm a bit of a rebel, so those kind of expected themes, they, they chafe at me like a scratchy shirt. And besides, this is not, in case you have not figured this out, let me just be very clear, not a predictable or stereotypical church. Amen. A few years ago, some of you will remember this, a few years ago we had Monster Truck Mother's Day. For real, like, our pastor at the time, he knew a guy who knew a guy that owned, like, a real, live, legit monster truck and talked him into driving it up here. Well, I mean, they bring it on a trailer because you, you don't actually drive those things very often, but bought, brought it on a trailer, parked it on the church lawn, and it was great. Like, the kids crawled all over it, and people took pictures. It's one of my favorite pictures of uh, Julie Jones standing on top of the tire that's, you know, twice as tall as her with her arms, you know. It was awesome. It was lots of fun. It was unexpected. For years before that, for years we had done um, just what many, many churches do, and it's a wonderful tradition of handing out the, you know, the wilted carnation, and, and that's great. I love that, because who does not like a flower delivered to you by your child? Like you send the kids up to the front, and they get the flower, and they bring it. It's beautiful. Fine. It was fine. But the truck, that was kind of exciting, that was kind of exciting and different. It was surprising. It was unexpected. And I think that I like that so much because that's very much like Jesus. And so I'm going to diverge from the expected path of the traditional Father, Father's Day sermon today. And I'm going to stick with what is kind of burning in my heart as we approach this uh, subject, and I'm going to talk about the very much unexpected, softer side of Jesus. But I want to say, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't, I don't think fatherhood is unimportant. Fatherhood is absolutely important, and my choice does not reflect my value for that role in our, our lives and our families. It's incredibly important. If you are here today and you are fathering someone, whether that's your biological child, whether that's a stepchild situation, or whether you're just one of those people that gathers individuals kind of into your family and into your fold, if you are fathering someone, you are very important. And I want to say thank you to you for the way that you live postured toward people in the world that way. The way that you act, the things that you say, the words that you speak, the way that you give a blessing or withhold it, those things are very important. They have a lifelong, lasting effect on people. And it's up to you to make sure that that effect is a good one. The Bible tells us that death and life are in the power of our tongue, and I'm not sure there's 
many situations where that's more true than of the words that are spoken by a father or a father figure over their children. But in the spirit of our series, we are bravely exploring together the ways in which we might not be aligned with God's heart because we think we already know what is the way that we should act, what the right way is. And, and yes, for fathers, yes, that is true. We have, to, we have to ask ourselves those questions. But for the rest of us as well, nobody gets to check out today just because it's Father's Day. Just in general, as human beings, we have to ask ourselves, do we have an accurate picture of how Jesus interacted with the people around him? And part of this discussion needs to be the acknowledgement that I think gender stereotypes have done us quite a disservice. Society and culture and the media tries to sell us this picture of what what manhood looks like, what fatherhood looks like, what, what leadership looks like masculinity, what those roles should look like. And then you mix that together with things like family traditions, ways that things worked in our particular family context, and and you get a way of doing things that can operate kind of on autopilot. It's like when your computer's up and there's a program running in the background or an app on your phone in the background, you may not be aware of it. And so we might not ever question the way things are. We might not ever question it because we've always done it that way. And that's nothing new. That's not new to our generation. It was certainly true in Jesus' time that there was an expected set of normal behaviors for men, for fathers in that society. And back then, just like it is now, It's really difficult for us to wrap our minds around the fact, and it was difficult for them to wrap their minds around the fact that God is not like us. He is completely and utterly other than us. He is a mysterious spiritual being. He does not have a gender. We use those Terms We use that terminology in the Bible because, I mean, that's just what our culture has been dominated by for centuries. But God is not a man. God is a spirit. He is different than us. He does not conform to any of our rules or categories, which is super frustrating because we love our boxes. But we're going to look at some stuff in the Bible today. I want you to notice this exchange between Jesus and one of his disciples. This is in John chapter 14. You can check that out on your device, paper Bibles on the windowsills. Of course, it's always on the screen behind me. John chapter 14, verse 8. Philip is talking to Jesus. He says, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Jesus has been talking about how he's going to you know, be killed. He's going to go to heaven. Where is he going to go? Philip says, show us the Father. We want to know what God is like. And this is Jesus' answer to him in verse 9. He says, 
Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. And Hebrews chapter 1 reiterates this concept. It says in verse 3, the Son, capital S, that means Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, God's glory being that which makes him recognizable as God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, exact, that's a very specific word, representation of his being. So we have this principle to guide us in this discussion and lots of others that Jesus shows us what God is really like. Jesus shows us what God is really like. And while Jesus came as a human man into a world that was dominated by male authority, he did not behave as was expected of a man at that time. He was strong, He was assertive, and he was powerful. Absolutely he was. But he also had a softer side, a gentler side, a meeker side. So he faced off with the dominant cultural narrative of the day, just bumped right up to it, and he turned it upside down. Listen to this short excerpt. This is from an article written by a man named Dan Durani. It was published on the Gospel Coalition website. He says this, In Scripture, gentleness appears in virtue lists, lists of things in the Scripture. It appears in virtue lists that contrast it with certain vices. So to be gentle is the opposite of being bold, quarrelsome, jealous, and ambitious. So we see then that the gentle can be assertive, but they do not assert themselves. We can be strong and assertive, yet gentle, if we leverage power not to assert self, but to promote the cause of God or the needy. Jesus was forceful, even confrontational, yet gentle, because he used his powers for others. And the same holds for us. The question is not how strong we are, but how we use our strength. So how did Jesus use his strength? He used it not for himself, but for others. Think, for example, about this story from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34. Starting in verse 25, it tells us, A woman was there 
who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So understand this before we go any further. According to the Jewish law, a woman who was menstruating was considered to be unclean. She was not able to be a part of community life, of family life. She was not supposed to touch anyone. Because whatever she touched, right down to the chairs that she sat on, was considered to be unclean, having been contaminated by her touch. And before a woman could resume normal life after her period was over, Jewish law actually required an animal sacrifice at the temple. Talks about in Leviticus 15, to atone for the uncleanness. Even in our day and age, you might be a little bit uncomfortable that I have just said the words menstruating and period from the stage. But back in the day, in the Jewish culture, this was a huge freaking deal. And this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. But verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. Because, she thought, if I just touch his clothes, then I will be healed. And she was right. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him and he turned around to the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? And the disciples, as they often were, were dumbfounded by this. I mean, picture like... I had friends who were downtown yesterday at the parade for the blues. Imagine being in the middle of a crowd like that and trying to figure out who has bumped up against the back of you. The disciples said, you see the people crowding around you, and yet you ask, who touched me? What in the world? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And finally, verse, 20, or verse 33 then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came and she fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and she told him the whole truth. In verse 34, he responds to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. trembling with fear. Of course she was trembling with fear. How scared must she have been when Jesus noticed and he asked and called out, who touched me? How terrifying that must have been because any other man in that culture would have responded with anger, frustration, possibly even abuse. 
because the inconvenience of being contaminated by an unclean person was huge. Now he has to do all the rituals. And the offense of an unclean woman being so presumptuous, it's just unprecedented. But that was not Jesus' response. He modeled something very different. And I like to think so that he did that in such a public way because he wanted everybody to hear. He had something to teach the crowd. Jesus demonstrated tenderness and comfort in the face of suffering. Consider also this story from later in Mark's gospel. Chapter 10, starting in verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. Of course the disciples rebuked them. Not because they were particularly callous men. They weren't particularly jerks. They didn't hate children. But that was a normal attitude for men of that culture and that time to have. If women were oppressively subservient to men, in many cases seen as little more than property, if women were viewed that way, then children even more so. So the disciples were just doing what any good disciple of the time would do. They were protecting their teacher from what would have been seen as a waste of time. But in verse 14, when Jesus saw this, Jesus was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. You and I sitting in this room cannot possibly appreciate how shocking this would have been to the people that are gathered there. How surprising to those watching. But again, in a very public way, Jesus emphatically dismissed, unapologetically dismissed the custom of the day. And he modeled for his audience what the heart of God really looks like. Children are incredibly vulnerable. Jesus offered acceptance in the face of vulnerability. But possibly the most radical contrast between Jesus and the manly men of his day, I think can be found in Matthew chapter 23. To set the scene... Jesus is standing on the hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem. He's on his way to die there. He's on his way to die at the hands of the devoutly religious leaders of the day. Oh, they're going to get the government to do their dirty work, the Romans. But make no mistake about it, it was the Jewish people that were driving 
and motivating this series of events. I badly wanted to read this entire chapter to you, but it's like 40 verses. And so for the sake of time, I'm just going to hit a few of the high points. But listen, while we read this, really, really think about this with me. We have to understand this. When we read the Bible, from our point of view, from our context, we, all, we always cast ourselves in the heroic role. Do you know that's our tendency? In any story in the Bible, we identify with the person that is the hero in the story. We automatically do that. And it's, it, you have to exert some effort to kind of put yourself in the other's shoes. But when we read this, we see the Pharisees as these bad, horrible people. They're the villain in the Gospels, aren't they? We know that. So these are the bad guys. But we forget, or maybe we didn't know in the first place, that these were not the bad guys. The Pharisees, for all appearances, were the good guys of the Jewish faith. They were, they were fiercely devoted to their religion. They followed the rules because they had a, a, a fire inside them for holiness. They wanted to live according to the way God had asked them to live. That's the motivation that started this movement. They had just lost sight of the Father's heart. And you and I and every single person that is sitting in any church building this week, we are all in the same danger. We are in danger of, of, of succumbing to the attitude that the Pharisees adopted, the danger of making our religion more about the rules than it is about God's love for people. And none of us are safe from that. So while I read this, fight with yourself. Fight the urge to be smug. Open your heart and ask God to show you to shine a light. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and he said to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do what they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You ever been around a religious person like that? Put a big, heavy burden right smack dab on your shoulders. We like to tell other people what they ought to do. Verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide. If you know what a phylactery is, you get an extra Bible buck today. They make their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. 
Skipping down to verse 7. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. I kind of like that when I'm at Walmart and people are happy to see me and they say, Hey, pastor. I kind of dig that. Skipping down to verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. It was the religious people that Jesus called hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Verse 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much of a child of hell as you are. I never want Jesus to say that about me. Verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. The, the requirement, the, the expectation being that you would, you would give of your possessions 10% to the temple, which is the local church. You would, you would share your wealth. And, and the Pharisees were so down to the letter of the law that they would tithe on their spices. Can you imagine going home and pulling your salt out of your cabinet and weighing it and bringing 10% of it down and putting it in the church kitchen? 10% of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Like somebody took a bucket of white paint and went down to the graveyard and shined something up. They look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Verse 34, therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify and others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Jesus pulls no punches. There's your sports metaphor for Father's Day. 
pulls no punches. He is clear. He is direct. He is strong. It's, it's harsh. It's hard to listen to that. Harsh. He calls out the perversion of his father's heart for the people. And it's important for us to hear those verses as the church today so that we can make sure that we're not in that same camp of people that look good on the outside, but what's inside doesn't match. And that's, by the way, why the culture here at Vineyard Rolla is the way it is. Because we don't want to create a dynamic where you feel like you have to hide your crap from everybody to be welcome in this community. Because then everything on the inside is rotting, no matter what it looks like on the outside. And that's not good for anybody. It's not in my notes, but... But here's what's unexpected about this chapter. It can seem like, what in the world? Why, why did you just read all of that? But here's the unexpected bit of Matthew chapter 23. Listen to verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. The people that are about to put me to death, Jesus is saying, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. What beautiful imagery that is. And what a surprising declaration to find at the end of what amounted to a rant about the hypocrisy of the teachers of God's law. Even with all the clarity and the strength and the power and the assertion of what the truth was, Jesus exhibited compassion and love in the face of conflict. And the king of the universe, most powerful being in existence, he compared himself to a brooding female chicken fussing over her babies. He wished desperately that those who hated him would allow themselves to be fussed over. To be gathered into his arms, which is the same as being gathered into the arms of our Heavenly Father, of God the Father. To allow themselves to be loved. Our rules, our customs, our stereotypes and our expectations, these things can be barriers between us and the beautiful life that God offers us. They can be like chains around our necks, weights around our ankles. These ideas of how we should behave, whether that's something that the fathers here 
have the weight of on them or whether it's, you know, what, what does it look like to be a woman as a pastor, as still a wife and still a mother? And what does that look like in our society? How am I supposed to walk that out? It doesn't matter if you're in this room, you are subject to our cultural stereotypes. Ideas about how we should behave. And Jesus invites us to shake off the heavy weights of all the shoulds in our lives. I hate the word should. It is like, it is like an obscenity, the word should. Jesus invites us to learn a new way of being in this world. And he says it is easy and it is light and it is beautiful. And all we have to do is open our hearts and receive it from him. So as we close today, I want to invite you to consider your own assumptions, your own set of shoulds, and to ask Jesus what he has to offer you there. And that's a gift to you, It's a gift to your children, it's a gift to your children's children, and it is a gift to this world. If we live as free people and allow ourselves to be loved this way. Let me pray.